guys, I'm Courtney Fox. And I'm Kathleen Acker, and we would like to welcome you to Meg's Front Page. This is your podcast to bring you up close and personal with authors who have published recent articles in JMEG and to keep you up to date with the latest in evidence-based practice. Hi guys, welcome to MIG's Front Page. This evening, we're interviewing Dr. Tatney Burnett and Adelia Cope about their recent article published in JMEG. Their article is entitled The Association Between Laparoscopic Appearance of Superficial Endometriosis, Positive Histology, and Systemic Hormone Use. We are so excited and honored to interview you today. So please, would you both mind introducing yourselves? Sure, happy to do so. Uh, My name is Tatney Burnett. I am a minimally invasive gynecologic surgeon at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, uh, Minnesota. Um, Been out of fellowship uh, practicing at Mayo Clinic since 2015 um, and have a special interest in pelvic pain, endometriosis, adenomyosis. Hi, I'm Adela Cope. I am a minimally invasive GYN surgeon also at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, practicing with TATNI. Um, I have started my second year of practice this year, also have an interest in endometriosis and pelvic pain and adenomyosis, um, and also have a mix of fibroids in my practice as well as abnormal bleeding. So we loved your recent article. So can you guys tell us what inspired your study? Sure. Um, It's no secret to anyone probably listening to this podcast that um, endometriosis care uh, around the world probably could serve women better. Um, We certainly have lots of excellent specialists who are doing great surgery, um, but we also have a lack of access to that specialty level care. Um, we have, you know, a fair number, a large quantity of generalist OBGYNs who just don't have additional training, who do the very best that they can for their patients. Um, and we just have a gap between the needs of the patient and the patients that we serve. So one of the things on my mind as I finished fellowship and spent some time with an endometriosis surgeon who really... Um, changed what I saw as the work of doing endometriosis surgery. I spent some time with Dr. Ken Sinervo um, and saw what he was excising, what he was seeing as abnormal, um, and the path that would come back from that, and compared it to my experience as a resident at a very well-established um, OB-GYN, you know, high-tier program. And I just realized that I hadn't learned how to recognize endometriosis um, in my training. Um, as good as my program was, as wonderful as my residency and my and my trainees and mentors were, um, I was not taking out every abnormality. And some of those abnormalities were that I was not taking out were likely endometriosis, based on what I saw um, with uh, with Dr. Sinervo. So when I established my practice, I, I you know had a goal of trying to show in some way um, that difference, you know, what makes an endometriosis lesion an endometriosis lesion? Um, How can we identify it? Are there lesions that we can say are not endometriosis and ignore them? Um, You know, I I, I can, you know, count on many hands and fingers the number of times I was in the OR in residency and someone was like, oh, that's probably not endometriosis. Let's leave that one alone. Um, Usually because it's close to the ureter or close to the rectum. Uh, And 
at the end of the day, I just wanted to somehow show research-wise that there is a quite a wide variety of appearances that can be positive for endometriosis. Um, and, and that was really what, uh, what led me to start the database, start collecting patients, and um, to produce this, this uh, study with the help of Dr. Cope and others. Wonderful. So how did you decide to look at hormone use specifically with endometriosis appearance? Were you noticing an association in your practice? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I wouldn't say that there is a specific uh, association that I had noticed. I mean, certainly we are all, we're all aware that in, for instance, teens, adolescents, we can see a varied appearance of endometriosis. Um, in my personal patients, um, I hadn't correlated hormone use with a specific appearance, but yeah, it just makes sense from a physiology standpoint that hormone use could affect the appearance. So we definitely wanted to investigate that a little bit more. We, we wish we had more high quality data on the hormone use picture. We had to only use a subset of patients for which the data existed, um, but uh, it was enough to, to be able to show that there was a difference for sure. And so what were your findings from the study? So the main findings were that for the listeners, we used um, the WERF effect uh, toolkit and anyone doing endometriosis research should really look into that and, and consider using it um, for their databases, for the tissue handling, et cetera. The, the WERF team has tried to harmonize endometriosis research. And I think that's an important step for us in the, in the endometriosis research community to, to consider doing that. So we're, we're speaking the same language, taking the same data, but we use the WERF effect um, uh, surgical uh, uh, standard form and uh, all of the data in there. We also added some specifics to it. So we added um, a field called puckering. So is the peritoneum pulling around the lesion? And nowadays, I, I, if our listeners are aware, in 2021, we um, had an update on endometriosis terminology. And the terminology for deep endometriosis has changed from five millimeters or greater to anything below the peritoneal surface. And so really puckering captured those uh, peritoneal invasive but weren't deep endometriosis lesions that are actually pulling on the surrounding peritoneum. Um, so we added that to the database. We also added specific connection between each of the WERF effect pelvic areas, like pelvic sidewall, uterosacral ligaments, uh, anterior cul-de-sac. Between each of those areas, we linked our pathology results so that when we created the database, we had specific pathology for each area, which wasn't specified in the WERF effect form, but I knew that that's one of the things I wanted to look at. So from the start of the database, we included that. So our findings really uh, showed that there's a wide variety of appearances of endometriosis. Um, you can see the list of terms in the article, white, red, blue, black, um, clear. Uh, and you know, interestingly to me and consistent with what I had seen in practice, um, the white and clear lesions really are the most predictive finding. Um, White and clear is a combination of vesicular lesions where you have a white rim, clear, clear inside. It is when I when I look at those patients and I'm operating, that is an endometriosis lesion until proven otherwise. And those lesions can be subtle. Um, they can sometimes not even be seen until you're close up on them with the uh, with the laparoscope. Um, so I think that's an important finding, number one. And then number two, the other important finding is that in patients who 
um, are using hormones, those clear type lesions are, are more prevalent than all of the other uh, types of lesions. Um, the subfinding, and I think this is very important, the subfinding is there was no appearance of endometriosis that ruled out the possibility of endometriosis of pathology. Okay? So whether it's yellow, brown, any of the other ones that weren't as associated, there was still a very high um, positive predictive value for even those other lesion types that weren't as predictive. So there is no lesion characteristic that you could use from my study to say, okay, we shouldn't take this out or we shouldn't take that out. It underscores the fact that if we want to do women um, a service when we do surgery for endometriosis and we want to be able to tell them, okay, you had an adequate surgery, all disease removed, optimal surgery, um, we have to remove all lesions, not pick and choose which lesions are more likely to be endometriosis or which are not. We really have to remove all lesions because everything has a possibility of being endometriosis. I've heard endometriosis um, be compared to cancer staging, you know, in my residency. And when you said, you know, optimal reduction, like that's what you really think of. Oh. That's correct. Um, if I'm treating a patient for pain in particular, um, my goal is to give them a better outcome after surgery. Um, and I can only achieve that goal if I can optimize their surgical outcome and remove all disease and set them up for as much success as possible afterwards. It also helps with knowing what the diagnosis is. You know, there are many causes of pain. If I don't remove all the endometriosis, I do an incomplete surgery. I tell them, well, I treated your endometriosis. It must be something else. Well, it's not unless... Um, unless we do that, that, that uh, high quality job and remove all disease and are able to get them onto the next step and treat their pelvic floor or treat uh, whatever else is going on. So what do you suspect is the reasoning that those who use hormones are more likely to have clear lesions? One of the things that we thought about and one of the studies that we highlighted in our discussion was a paper by Khan et al. that looked at appearance and activity within lesions. And although we did not specifically do activity measures within the lesions that were sampled and biopsied during these surgeries for patients who were enrolled in this study, um, we do think that there could be a correlation between lesion activity and hormone use. We know that hormones work by suppressing lesion activity, making symptoms be more manageable for patients. And so by being on hormones, are we suppressing activity? and hemorrhage within these lesions that then correlates with that change in appearance is what we guess, but you know, we don't know for sure since we didn't look at that within our own patients. I'm going to put a plug in for Dr. Cope. She's currently working on a study that hopefully will give us some of that information on lesion activity. Um, she's one of our rising star researchers, so we're excited to see the results of that come out. I've been working on this project for a long time where um, translational project looking at um, immune factors in endometriosis lesions, and then also the role of the microbiome and looking at different phenotypes and stages. That's super important to get down to the biochemical of what endometriosis is in order for us to kind of further progress kind of the why and how, as opposed to just treating. So my next question is, do you think that given your findings, it might be more difficult for someone who is not specifically trained or up to date on current literature that they might miss endometriosis in patients? The definitely. I think that in general, you know, even when people do have training in MIGS, depending on what that looks like, because there is so much heterogeneity within programs, if you're not doing a close, very, very close survey, not just kind of, oh, I zoomed in somewhat into the pelvis, you're not going to be able to see some of these lesions. And I think in particular, when you look at the findings from our study, the importance of identifying clear lesions and excising them to truly treat these lesions and identify them, um, they would be easy to miss if you're not 
looking at it as often, not realizing what all the different appearances that endometriosis can take. Yeah, clear lesions in particular, particularly if they're not rimmed by white, can be, they're, they're easy to miss. Um, they can look slight, like just bubbles or water on the surface. Um, you know, I think it's really a twofold problem. Okay, the, the problem is, yes, I do believe there is an inherent, um, an inherent lack of adequate training for our generalist OBGYNs to know what's endometriosis, be able to recognize it and remove it. You, you know, everyone's going to take out the, the black and, and, and blue powder burn type lesions. Um, the more subtle findings uh, I've seen personally be dismissed. Um, the second part, though, is, is also just the surgical skill, quite frankly. So when you have a lesion that's close to the rectum, when you have a lesion that's overlying the ureter, it's very easy to say, well, we'll leave that one alone. It's too dangerous. Or that one's probably not endometriosis. We'll, we'll leave that one alone. Um, and I see countless uh, patients in, in my practice who come with an op note that says something to that effect. Um, and, you know, they usually, they had surgery, they had incomplete excision of disease, and they were put on Lupron for, you know, six months to, to even longer than that. And then they come to me and we, we, we are going back to the drawing board and saying, okay, let's, let's treat all the other causes of pain too. But if you've had incomplete excision, it's maybe time to go back and revisit that. So they're getting two surgeries instead of one high quality, adequate surgery up front. Um, so what are the next steps in your research? I know you briefly talked about it already, but with laparoscopic findings and correlation with pathology, clinical outcomes. The first next step is to correlate outcomes. So we need our, our data set to mature a little bit to see, uh, you know, I quite frankly, one year, two year outcomes, they're easy to be good. You know, we're looking at, you know, we need the four five, six year and, and further out outcomes. Um, we're maturing that in our database. It, it's a difficult data set to collect because you need, you know, a large number of patients to return at that time frame. Um, but that would be our um, our goal is to correlate excision surgery, um, lesion activity, those kinds of things, um, phenotype with outcome. Uh, that would be um, my dream. Um, and then COPE, I think, is is really going to take us forward on the. Um, molecular, biochemical, microbiome side. Yeah, and so um, one of the areas that I'm interested in is what makes all of these different lesions different. We know that endometriosis is not just a yes or no pathology. I think there's a lot of heterogeneity of disease. I think there's a lot about that that we don't understand. And I think that that's a detriment to our patients and how we can help treat them and help them understand their own disease um, and how we can understand how to treat it the best. And I think that um, that's a piece that we all would like to have more information on. Um, I currently am working on finally getting to the findings part of my uh, thesis project from fellowship, um, looking at the microbiome and immune factors in endometriosis. Um, we enrolled those with and without endometriosis with laparoscopic assessment in all recruits. And um, we sent specimens off and they're hopefully going to be processed soon, looking at microbiome differences potentially. There have been studies that have looked at that already, uh, mostly in advanced stage endometriosis patients. And I think that that's something that um, at least in some of the translational projects that I've looked at, you know, there's a missing piece where we're not looking at the full spectrum of disease and we're not necessarily even able to take that into account in some of the studies that are out there. So it's not just endometriosis, yes, no. What about symptoms? 
Does that vary from patient to patient? Does that change how it behaves and how it looks on a molecular level, the immune players that are involved, um, the different stages, the different locations, all of those things. I think there's a lot of gaps and it's an exciting area to be involved with. And so from this initial pilot, we're hoping to expand out and look at some of these other areas as well, depending on what our fi initial findings show. Well, I am super excited and I will stay tuned for your future upcoming papers because I agree. I think that we're just on the tip of the iceberg for the real treatment. Is there anything else that you want to discuss tonight or give as a takeaway point for our listeners? If you have you know, symptoms that could be endometriosis, if this is a patient population listening, you know, my, my advice to you would be to find a provider who is trained in endometriosis, has specific training and interest in endometriosis, um, particularly if you're, if you're thinking about going into surgery. Um, I think it's very important. Um, if for providers listening, um, there are ways to get additional training if you're interested. There are observerships that you can do. Um, and, and I'd say those are of high value. Um, and uh, we just hope that we can elevate the care of endometriosis for all women, but for all providers um, throughout, uh, throughout North, North America. And, and hopefully we can help to do that with studies like this. I agree. I think that, you know, for all providers, this is really important. I myself am from a rural state and I know access can be really difficult. And I really admire the general practice, you know, OBGYN specialists that are out there that are taking care on the front lines for these women that are in places where they might have difficulty with access. And I think that um, the important thing is meeting patients where they are and being realistic about what your goals are with them and then what your own limitations are. And if you are interested in further training, as Dr. Burnett mentioned, there are ways to achieve that. And I think that that's something that hopefully we can all um, embrace as we try to take better care of these patients. The other thing I would say is thank you so much for having us on and uh, we appreciate the uh, dive into the, the paper and yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This has been another episode of MIGS Front Page. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for our next episodes.